0: Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview, or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. And I think it's this, this whole thing that maybe if you've spent time in church, you've heard this said before, that joy is not an emotion. And then oftentimes it's said by someone who's not smiling, joy's not an emotion. And I think what people mean by that is that joy isn't like other emotions. Even in the Advent reading that I wrote, I contrast joy with happiness, right? Happiness is just this emotion that we might feel according to what's happening around us. But joy is something deeper than that, right? Joy is something that is more meaningful than just how our brain responds to the stimuli around us and the emotions that come and go and, and are, you know, are highly subjective, they're highly reliant on our own interpretation of our reality. Uh, you might go to a movie and say, that movie made me happy, it was great. I might go to the same movie and say, that was a terrible waste of my time and money and now I'm depressed. <laughs> and so we're trying to drive home that joy is more than that, right? There's something... Um, you know, not quite so subjective. There's something richer. There's something deeper. There's something more lasting about joy. It has to be more than these emotions, right? And so we fa- th- say things like, joy is a, a virtue. I, I'd written that for the Advent devotional this morning. Um, you know, what do we mean by that? I don't know. We just mean it's more than an emotion, right? We mean it's something more. But the reality is joy is, when we experience it, It is something that we feel. Joy isn't something that we believe. It's not something that we comprehend or convince ourselves of in our mind. Experiencing joy isn't like learning math. It is something that we feel. It's it's an emotion in that we experience that in our emotional core where we experience other emotions. So what is it that makes joy different if I feel joy but it's not like the other things that I feel what makes it different most emotions that we have are generated by the changing stimuli around us if I'm hungry and I'm tired I might feel a little bit angry or annoyed or impatient in the drive through line or something if the trailblazers win a game I feel really really happy <clears throat> this season I don't feel very happy very often at all if the stock market tanks, I feel anxious. I mean, my part of my retirement plan is tied up in that. How is my future going to survive if, if the stocks aren't doing well? If I'm eating ice cream, I just to give you a window into my soul, if I'm eating ice cream, I could not be more content in that moment. Ice cream is wonderful. But when that stimuli changes, so often my feelings will change as well. For example, we went to a Blazers game some years ago. This was when my boys were quite young, and they were playing the Washington Wizards at the time, and it was a, a competitive close game all the way through, but the Blazers were kind of ahead, and so, you know, the home team is just into it. The crowd is roaring, and um, and it's coming down to the very end of the game. There's just a few seconds left, and Washington has the ball, and they inbound it, and the guy's streaking down the court trying to get a good shot off, and as the buzzer sounds, he launches it from Just, you know, just the basket side of half court. And so the buzzer sounds and even stops sounding while the ball is still in the air. And the crowd is like just roaring, excited, and then swish. It goes down. And what was going to be a two-point win turns into a one-point loss. And for a brief second that it takes the crowd to process what has just happened, you know, our hopes for the night being dashed to pieces, There's, like, you could have heard a pin drop. I mean, it goes from a roar to silence to then this just groan of defeat. Like, I can't believe it. And then they're playing it over and over on the replay, and (laughs) the groans just keep coming. What a terrible thing. We were happy because we thought we'd won, and now it turns out we've lost, and we're on an emotional roller coaster. And so how is joy more than that? How can we, when we talk about something like joy, such a holy thing, how can we make sure that we understand it as more than just another up on the roller coaster, or a down, depending on what your preferred part of the roller coaster is? I learned something recently about joy that I can honestly say I'd never considered in my life before, a way of thinking about it. In their book, The Other Half of Church, authors Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks build on the work of this UCLA brain researcher named Dr. Alan Shore. And this Dr. Alan Shore has an insightful way of thinking about joy that that led them to a new way of thinking about how we relate to God and, and even how we do discipleship in church. Anyhow, Dr. Shore, who is not even a Christian, but in his research, he defines joy in relational terms. Specifically, he says that joy is when someone Uh, Sorry, joy is someone who is glad to be with me. Or joy is when you feel for yourself that you are the sparkle in someone else's eye. And he really links this concept of joy to his work on understanding human attachment. Think of how parents relate to their children. You know, the kind of love that exists in a parent-child relationship. And so intrigued by this idea, these two Christians, Wilder and Hendricks, they they define joy as something different. And they begin to think about how joy might impact a worshiping community and our efforts to sort of help each other walk along in this path towards uh, discipleship following Jesus. And so they define joy as the feeling that you get when you see on another person's face that they are delighted to be with you. And then they also assert that this feeling, joy, is like the fuel that our brains run on. In other words, words, when you feel that you are delighted in, when you are convinced that there is another face somewhere that is delighted to be with you, your brain is geared up and ready to tackle the challenges of living and growing in a broken world. In a sense, our brains are hardwired by God to run on this joy, Brain researchers will point out that when we're born into, a healthy, into healthy relationships, when we're born into a healthy parent-child relationship, uh, we have a way of bringing smiles onto people's faces. Think about your, whenever you've witnessed or maybe you've engaged in your own uh, human interactions with newborn babies. And it's crazy because these little human beings come out, right? And people hold them. And then all of the people that are interacting with them and holding them begin to behave very, very strangely. They're smiling. They're talking in a high voice. They're so delighted to see this little child who has literally done nothing for anyone ever in their life. (laughs) And so, and this is part of the work of this guy at UCLA. Like, he taps into that and he says, our brains are designed to be fueled by these positive interactions with each other. And... Babies who are, you know, in healthy families and, and have healthy parents who have a healthy parent-child relationship, they're babies who are coddled and they're, they're dawdled over and, and people that coo and smile at them all the time. I can remember watching people do such things, you know, when I was growing up as a young man, and it's probably common for young men in our, in our society to be somewhat uncomfortable around babies, you know, we're not really usually encouraged to play with dolls or anything like that. And I can remember seeing people interacting with babies and thinking, I could never do something like that. It would feel so unnatural to be like, Gucci, Gucci, goo. But let me tell you, something inside of me, inside of my brain, inside of my heart, inside of my soul, something inside of me was transformed the minute that one of those little beings was seen as now a part of me and not just someone else's kid. And, and then it, it turned out that I could, you know, I can Gucci, Gucci, goo it up with the best of them. And after I had experience doing that with my own children, I, I experience a wash of positive emotions when I see a baby or when I get to hold a baby, and it just pours out of me. It's, it's, it's hilarious when I think of how different I was when I was younger. So you imagine these babies' brains just being being washed over and over again, right, with joy, being washed over and over again with this idea that people are delighted that I am here. And over time, this is why scientists assert, like, this is how our brains are meant to be. This is supposed to be our default emotion, that joy would be what we feel. When we're lacking stimuli around us, when, when you know, when nothing amazing has happened, a basket hasn't been made, and that space of time between the basket being made or missed, like, we should just be feeling as a default, joy. Of course, life happens, and, you know, flawed parents, flawed communities, we begin to wash these babies' brains with things other than joy from time to time. And at times this is appropriate, and at times it's not, but the reality of a broken world is that over time, incidences of abuse or neglect or separation, even when it's healthy separation, our brains respond to all of that, and especially when things like trauma happens, we end up with different default emotions. And so when we're not directly interacting with some kind of stimuli, our brains might fall into any number of other emotions, things like fear or anger or anxiety or insecurity or sadness. Unfortunately, I think so often in the Christian world, the default emotion for many of us is shame. Somewhere in the back of our minds, we know we're not quite measuring up. And so when we don't feel anything, that thought haunts us and we feel shame. That doesn't mean that there aren't times when we do feel delighted in and that joy doesn't, you know, come and visit us from time to time. Certainly, we can see people's faces beaming with delight to see us on occasion and those moments are wonderful. And, and I know, I mean, for me, when I see on someone else's face that they're delighted to be with me, it's like sweet medicine in the brokenness of this world, right? This is part of why we believe in community. This is part of why we come together so that we can delight in being together. But, that, but for many people whose brains have you know, been impacted in this way, joy doesn't define and it doesn't fill their lives, For some people, their brain is more tuned to recognize judgment on the faces of others or anger or disapproval or dismissal. When you have these default feelings, it's even possible to misinterpret what you're seeing in front of you. What does our faith offer to humanity that is living in this reality? What does it mean to... Um, to, to live in a place where there's potential for constant relational joy and yet equally trapped in a place where fractured lives and a broken world constantly seems to undermine that or embody something short of delight. Let's turn to the scriptures. You know, if you go to the book of Genesis, and we won't read that, but it's amazing how the, the creation account of our world depicts this God who is delighting and rejoicing in his creation. Everything he does, he says, this is good, this is wonderful, this is good, this is delightful. He's declaring goodness and rejoicing and delighting in everything that he is doing. As you move forward through the, the account that scripture gives us of God interacting with human beings, there's this this really important moment in Numbers chapter 6. You can turn your Bibles to number 6 if you would like to. Uh, We'll start reading in verse 21. But in this chapter, God is instructing Moses how the priests are to interact with the people. And so God is telling Moses about this priesthood he wants to establish, these people who are going to stand and, and kind of in this intermediary place between God and humanity. And he's telling Moses how this is supposed to work out, how these How these men who are going to be priests are supposed to interact with the people. In verse 22, the Lord says to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you're to bless the Israelites. You're going to say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. God's trying to paint a picture for what does it look like for human beings to stand in that place of God and speak a blessing over the people. And he says, I want you to use these words. The Lord's face shining upon you. Not seeing judgment, but seeing graciousness in his face. He continues, he says, and bless him saying, the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Peace. This language is, it's not a mistake. And and I think those of us who are made in God's image are meant to see something here. The blessing of the Lord is his face turned towards you, his full attention and his face shining upon you. Love in his eyes, giving you peace, his steady gaze drawing you into harmony with himself. Moses says that in doing this, the priests are going to put my name on the Israelites, and I'm going to bless them. Moses says this, and, and you know, he's talking about the authority of the priesthood. This is where you stand. This is what you say. This is how you embody God to the people and speak on behalf of God to the people. And he says, and if you will do this, if you will say, may the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. May he he turn his face towards you. He'll give you peace. He says, in doing that, you're going to put my name. The the core concept of of Hebrew name, the the idea is the essence of my character. the, The core of his personhood. You're going to infuse the people with that. You're going to put my name on these people. It's a relational language of unity and oneness. I mean, think about in our culture, where do we take names? When do we take someone's name upon ourselves? Marriage. Marriage is like, there it is, right? There it is for our cultural understanding. This is language of unity and oneness. You're going to put my name upon them, and they're going to have peace, and I am going to bless them. This can be kind of difficult language for us. I mean, we think of God's face, sure, but God is spirit his face we know it's not like ours and yet we're made in his image and we have faces I think one of the most notable facts about Moses recorded in Exodus 33 is that we are told that Moses talked with God face to face as a man talks to his friends and one thing that we know about this face time that Moses had with God is that it resulted in Moses's face radiating with God's glory So much so that Moses had to cover his face with a veil whenever he was around the people. And according to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the reason Moses was covering his face was so the people wouldn't be preoccupied with this man who was passing away. They wouldn't be distracted by the passing glory of Moses' face, lest they forget the Eternal One who this glory is coming from. Paul seems to argue in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that, in fact, this is what happened. Despite Moses' efforts to not become a distraction from God, God's people ended up worshiping the law and looking to Moses and not necessarily seeing the true God, the one worthy of glory. But then Paul offers this hope in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. He says, But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us who with unveiled faces are contemplating the glory of the Lord are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. This all comes from the Lord who is spirit. What is Paul saying? He's saying when we will take our eyes off of these earthly things, we will turn our faces to God, and we'll contemplate the Lord's glory. And honestly, I think when, they, when he says the Lord's glory, I, we're meant to think face. Moses' face glowed with God's glory. We're meant to think, turn to, the, to consider the glory of the Lord. I don't know how you consider the glory of God without looking at his face. And if you have doubts about that, just a few verses later, in the next chapter, Paul writes, For God who said, let light shine in the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts By giving us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Where is the source of God's glory? Where do we look to contemplate God's glory? It is displayed in the face of Christ. And this is the miracle of Christmas. That the face of God was embodied in Christ a man, in a man with flesh and blood just like ours. More specifically, the miracle is that that same face that, you know, that was commanded to shine, You know, the blessing was that the God's face would shine on humanity, that same face that commands a blessing on the creation that he delights in, that same face becomes a face of a baby whose parents delight in it parents who cooed and, and delighted. You imagine you know, Mary and Joseph holding that baby in the first hours and, and moments of its life and the joy on their faces. And in some miraculous and mysterious way, God's mind who resides in this baby gets to feel what you and I felt in those early moments of our life when someone delighted in us. And this baby, of course, grows up to be a man, a man who lives forever at the right hand of God. And the fact that this, this man lives forever ever at the right hand of God is meant to uh, root that blessed face of God into something that we can see and something that we can touch and something that we can relate to and experience in our own humanity. The Apostle Paul testifies that that the process by which the Holy Spirit enables people to contemplate, that through this process where the Holy Spirit enables us to contemplate the glory of the Lord, that we are going to be transformed ourselves. And we're not transformed by our rules. We're not transformed by our good behavior. We're not transformed by all of the wonderful hallmarks of the Christian religion. But we are transformed by being in the presence and contemplating the glory, the face of the one who delights in us I think what we start to tap in here start to tap into here in this concept is the difference between having a relationship with the living god of the universe through Jesus Christ and having a religion that teaches us a lot of truth about our world I think what we're tapping in here is the kind of relationship with God where His Holy Spirit transforms our lives from the inside out versus working our hands to the bone, trying to figure out how to be more like God ourselves. And His face is shining on us when the wind blows, and His face is shining on us when the fires rage. I mean, this is the whole thing. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That face of God is delighting in you because of Jesus Christ yesterday, today, and forever. And my prayer for you this holiday season is that your eyes would be open to see God's face shining on you. It happened for me, that second or third song. I mean, we hit the chorus and immediately it was like, and you described these moments in worship where I feel like I'm somewhere important, the throne room of God. And for About 30 seconds, I'm overwhelmed with emotion, feeling that God's face is right there, and He is delighting in me. Not because of anything I've done, like a newborn baby being held out. He's just delighting in me because I am His, and because He makes good things, and He delights in His creation. And then, isn't it interesting that God would invite humanity into this kind of a relationship. And this is partly what I think makes us unique as Christians among other world religions because this is an insight that is not offered anywhere else, that the creator of the universe would invite us into this kind of a relationship. And then isn't it interesting that that God who prescribed a priesthood for his people, people who would stand in that place and command the, the face of God blessing on the people, that then he would send his son to embody that face of God blessing So that humanity might actually see it and understand what it's really about. And then he would say to all of his son's followers, you are a kingdom of priests. You are meant to be the people who now bless the people with the face of God blessing. I might be getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but I really believe our next year at Renewal is about seeking God's face together. that he might be able to work in our hearts in such a way that would take us beyond being Christians and becoming people who are truly connected with our God, people who are Jesus' disciples. And then I believe that as God does that work in our heart, we begin to embody that face as we go out into the world around us. We 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 become one with the glory to have God display his glory in us, to live out of the essence of this connection we have with God and to live out of the essence, his name, his essence here on earth. It's it's the kind of stuff Jesus prayed for in John 17, talking about the glory and the oneness and share the glory and make us one, like that God's people would have joy and that the world would know that we are his people. The world would know that God's Love is in us and that he is reconciling all things to himself. Oh, I thought that was it, but I still have a few paragraphs to go. (laughs) Let me see if any of this is worth saying. I guess all that's to say we're really meant to have a powerful impact on, on people, on each other. Um, so let's be people of the light this Advent season. Let's trust God, especially when we gather together, to help us to see beyond our annoyances with each other, to help God, to have God help us see beyond maybe the distance that exists between us, and to somehow be able to, uh, to shine and represent that joy. Um, Imagine what it would be like to walk into a church and through your interactions with people, be convinced that there's people delighting in you being there, that there's a God who's delighting in you being here. And I'm not talking about like the counterfeit, like we all wear a smile when we come to church and (laughs) I'm fine. Are you fine? What a great day. Praise the Lord. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about God doing something transformative in our hearts that just oozes out into the community around us. These words were said on the night Christ was born uh, by the angels. They said, joy to the world and peace on earth and goodwill toward all with whom God is well pleased. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say goodwill toward all, all whom God's face is shining upon. And we truly believe that in Christ, uh, God's heart would be to reconcile all of humanity into that category. And so uh, we want to be people who are a part of that story.